From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. In a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. Now each state in the union has a decision to either keep abortion rights or take them away. At the moment, seven states, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kentucky, Arkansas, and Alabama have already instituted abortion bans, while others are expected to ban abortion in the coming months. 20 states are protecting or expanding abortion rights following the decision. This week, we'll talk to legal historian and author Mary Ziegler. She's written extensively about the battle over abortion rights and the conservative movement to end abortion. Her latest book, Dollars for Life, focuses on the rise of the pro-life movement because of campaign spending. At the end of the show, we'll catch up with a voter that I spoke to before the 2020 election. He's a conservative who supports the decision of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe. It's Wednesday, June 29th, and this is News Nerds. Mary Ziegler is a professor at the UC Davis School of Law. She focuses on the history of the abortion debate and has written several books on the topic. Her most recent book, Dollars for Life, The Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment, focuses on how abortion changed the conservative movement. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Well, thanks for having me. So your latest book uh, talks about anti-abortion advocates and how money has kind of contributed to the the current Supreme Court's ruling and the events leading up to this and how the how the Republican uh, movement has changed because of this. How has money and campaign finance contributed to this ruling? Well, I think one thing that, that should be clear is that uh, the anti-abortion movement helped to change the Supreme Court, not to make it more conservative, because of course we've had conservative Supreme Courts before, but to encourage the building of a court that was sort of indifferent to public controversy, right? That was sort of invested in the interpretive approach of the justices or their beliefs about how to interpret the constitution and maybe their politics as well, without regard to whether that would cause a backlash or damage the court. And so the reversal of Roe was central to the effort to build that kind of court. And and the anti-abortion movement, which many people don't know, played a central role in the fight to deregulate campaign spending, which of course Montana has been a big part of. Uh, Anti-abortion lawyers led the litigation of cases like Citizens United that led to this uh, a really big surge in outside spending. So spending from super PACs and nonprofits that both I think helped to change the court and change the Republican party too, um, making it, I think in some ways, opening the door to populist figures like Donald Trump. What are some of the other strategies that anti-abortion advocates um, used to get a court that, as you said, would be impartial to um, public backlash or uh, as we see the approval ratings have gone down to a 50 year low, I think it is. What are some of those other strategies and how have they applied those in recent years? Well, I think the movement, part of the reason the movement wanted to deregulate campaign spending was not only to get more Republicans elected, because historically Republicans have been better at raising money, um, but also to to essentially get or buy more influence within the GOP so that when justices were nominated, if they weren't conservative enough or if they were too worried about their public reputations, um, then the movement could try to 
get rid of those nominees. So we have, we've actually seen that in 2005, George W. Bush nominated Harriet Myers, and there was a big outcry from the anti-abortion movement and other social conservatives. And Myers was withdrawn and she was replaced by Samuel Alito, who's of course the judge who wrote the opinion overturning Roe. And we've seen some of this sort of inside pressure on Republicans to pick a certain kind of judge and judges who are more predictable and more divisive, right? So if you look at the confirmation votes of justices recently, it used to be the case that both Republican and Democratic nominees would get bipartisan confirmation votes. That was true, for example, um, of John Roberts and Elena Kagan, who are both on the court. Now you often see that it's by design that, that Republican presidents will pick judges who are more controversial, seem more outspoken about things like Roe. Um, and that's sort of the point. The point is to get for Republicans to get judges who will rally the base and for conservative movements to get judges who will reliably do what they view as the right thing, even if it would damage their own personal legacies or the legacy of the court. You, you're speaking specifically about Republican uh, presidents who appoint uh, judges that have these views. Do Democratic uh, presidents, have they kind of leaned toward appointing more extreme judges or judges that don't uh, really care about what their public uh, view is? I think to a degree. I mean, I think the polarization is in both parties, but I think it's been asymmetric. I think it's also fair to say that conservatives have just been much better at mobilizing voters about the courts. Um, they've been better able, like, for example, with Mitch McConnell and keeping uh, Merrick Garland off the court, better able to kind of play hardball with the court. So while I think you do see Democrats nominating different kinds of judges and being less, I think, interested in moving to the center than they once were, I think the polarization is is not even, right? I think it's more visible on the Republican side, which is one of the reasons we see the court. This is not a court of, of the center of the United States. This is a court of the right of the United States. And that's partly because conservatives have been more successful in polarizing the court in that way than progressives have. If polling on abortion has been correct, we see that there's a, a, a clear majority of, of voters and citizens of the United States that to some extent uh, approve of uh, abortion procedures. And because of that, it, it would seem that there would be a a movement to elect officials that could appoint judges that have the same viewpoint as the majority of the public. But you're just mentioning that that Republicans uh, have had a better uh, outcome in the polls. Why is that if there's a majority of people that approve of abortion? Well, I think there are probably two answers to that question. One is just the depth of partisanship. So take Montana, for example, like the best polling we have in Montana would suggest that most Montanans don't want abortion to be a crime. But we also know that Montanans tend to vote for Republicans. So sometimes you're asking people to choose between their partisan preferences and their views on an issue. And sometimes their partisan preferences win out. So we may get very different answers if we went directly to voters on this stuff, right? If we ask people to vote, do you want to ban abortion in your state or not? Not do you want to elect Republican or Democrat? What do you want to do about abortion specifically? The other, I think, issue is that people have been complacent. So people who are young now, who are in anywhere from, you know, kids up to high school, college, 
graduate school, they've never lived in a world where abortion was a crime. So it was easy to be complacent about it and just assume that nothing really was going to happen. Like your state may pass abortion laws, but no one was really going to enforce them. That wouldn't really affect you. So I think we have to see now if this is more of an issue for people when these, these laws are actually going to go into effect, right? People are actually going to see what it means. Um, and states may be doing more than they did historically, right? They're, they're punished, the punishments attached to new abortion laws are harsher than they were in the 19th century. There are some signs that states that are conservative are going to try to affect what states that are progressive do. So this isn't just states leaving each other alone and states' rights. This may be states interfering with other states. Um, and so I think, you know, the world we might find ourselves living in may make people more motivated to care about this than they were in the years when Roe v. Wade was on the books. There was one thing that in my research uh, that kind of struck me. There was once a time when the stances of liberals and conservatives was was kind of flipped uh, in 1972, mm -hmm. which was a year before Roe versus Wade was was a, a, uh, was the decision by the Supreme Court was made. Uh, a Gallup poll showed that Americans had a, a different opinions about abortions than we see now. 68% of Republicans and only 59% of Democrats agreed, agreed that the quote decision to have an abortion should be made solely by a woman and her physician. So how did the transition to our political party's current views take place? Well, um, it, it kind of in two ways. I think one was the rise and sort of movement of white evangelical Protestants um, into the anti-abortion camp. That wasn't true historically either. Southern Baptists, for example, were supportive of limited access to abortion for much of the 70s. It wasn't really until 1980 that they became clearly pro-life. And when that happened, there was also a lot of unrest among uh, white evangelical Protestants about other issues like the rise of the early gay rights movement or the spread of no-fault divorce. And so I think white evangelicals began to see abortion as connected to all of those other issues of gender. And Republican politicians began to see that abortion might be a way of winning over what had been kind of union Democrats, right? So people who were Catholic or Protestant who had voted for the Democratic Party because it was the party of sort of, you know, unions, workers, blue collar America, um, that those people were socially conservative. And if the Republican Party leaned into the abortion issue enough, it may make it easier for the Republican Party to take power and keep it. And that's that was the intuition that Ronald Reagan had. And I think conversely, the Democratic Party at the same time began to be one where, you know, feminists in particular had more influence. And so the Democratic Party, which had sort of shied away from arguing that abortion was a right, began to do it. So the polarization at the kind of elite national party level happened in the 80s. Voters began to sort of sort themselves by abortion in the 90s. And it wasn't even really until after 2010 that you saw state legislatures flip. So, you know, a lot of Southern legislatures, for example, weren't banning abortion and weren't actually controlled by Republicans until after 2010. So it was a very gradual process and it wasn't inevitable either. There's nothing inevitable about if you're a Republican that you should oppose abortion. That's a product of our history. So let's talk about the ruling by the Supreme Court uh, last week that bans abortion uh, and, and gives it 
well, federal abortion then gives the decision back down to the states. So there was a, a lengthy debate over this. And in the final ruling, uh, which was six to three, both sides had a different legal base, basis for their opinions. Can you tell me what the legal basis was for both the majority and then the dissenting opinions? Sure. Yeah. So the, there was, um, well, there was kind of complicated. So a six to three vote to uphold this Mississippi law, five to four to overturn Roe, because Chief Justice John Roberts didn't join that part of the opinion. Mm-hmm. So on the overturn Roe part, uh, the court, the majority essentially said our rights are defined by history and tradition. So only the, the only implied rights we have, so in other words, rights that aren't spelled out in the text of the Constitution, are rights that you know, our forefathers would have recognized when the Constitution was written. So the court that the majority looked at what it, it described as the history of the law on abortion going back to the Middle Ages through the 19th century when the 14th Amendment, the relevant part of the Constitution, was written and said, you know, in our view, abortion was always treated as a crime. It was being criminalized more throughout pregnancy in the 19th century, so it couldn't have been viewed as a right. Um, and that that's, they, they say, of course, they recognize that that approach to constitutional rights might mean that a lot of rights need to be undone. But the majority says, no, this is just about abortion and abortion is different because it involves the taking of a human life. The dissenting justices say, one, we don't really think the majority's history makes a lot of sense because the majority ignores what a lot of leading historians say. Essentially, the, the history is more messy, the dissent says, than the majority is making it out to be. Um, and two, at any rate, even if it isn't, it's weird to say that the only rights we have come from a time in the 19th century when women couldn't vote, when people of color really were kind of excluded from the franchise, when even some people with less money who were white and male weren't really functionally getting full access to government that um, when interracial marriage was a crime, that uh, that can't be the dissensus, that can't be the, the only source of our rights. Um, so there, there's very different ideas in the majority and the dissent, not just about abortion, but about you know, our constitutional tradition as a whole. Um, because uh, three of these justices were appoint, uh, appointed by President Trump, and we're seeing a transition to a more conservative court. Uh, what is the consensus by legal scholars universally on this issue uh, when interpreting the law on abortion? I mean, there is no universal consensus, obviously. I mean, I think there was a lot of, there's a lot of consensus that Roe was not a great decision. And I think there's likely to be a lot of consensus that Dobbs, this new case, was not a great decision. I don't think this is a beacon of legal reasoning either. Um, I think that there will be ongoing debates about abortion. Um, I don't think we've seen the last of it in, in law either. And one place we'll need to look out in Montana as, and elsewhere is whether we'll see arguments about state constitutions and abortion, whether state constitutions protect the right to abortion or not. We're seeing this already, um, for example, in Michigan, and we're likely to see um, similar challenges like that spread across the country. So many states have trigger laws that would immediately ban, ban abortion uh, with a decision like this. Other states like Montana, where I am, and um, others around the country would uh, is like, are likely to ban abortion. And then there's other 
places like New York and California, where you are, um, that are more liberal strongholds and that would uh, protect abortion rights. How would red states uh, enforce a ban on abortion when you can get abortion pills online or through the mail? That's the million dollar question, right? I think legislators are asking themselves that right now because, and it's also important to say like where you can get the pills from. It's not just that you can get the pills from California, you can get the pills from Europe. And so that means that in order to enforce this law, red states essentially have, or like conservative states have two choices, right? One is to try to prosecute the doctor in Europe, which isn't gonna work because Europe is not gonna extradite someone they think didn't do anything wrong. Or they have to punish the person who bought the pills, who lives in their state. And at this point, most conservative states are saying they don't wanna punish women and pregnant people. They just wanna punish doctors or people who aid or abet them. So, um, it's going to be very hard to enforce these laws. We've seen some sign that, for example, South Dakota is debating trying to punish doctors from progressive states for performing abortions on people from South Dakota. It's not clear whether they have the legal authority to do that, but they may try. We've seen a group of folks called abortion abolitionists arguing that states like Montana should punish women for having abortions. Um, so we'll probably see a renewed debate about that. Um, we've seen some more left-leaning people who are pro-life, usually who are Catholic, saying the solution is not to criminalize anything, but to do more to support people who are pregnant, whether that's through crisis pregnancy centers or often through you know, government support, like paid family leave or better laws against discrimination against pregnant workers. So, I mean, I don't know how you, enforce the laws. But what makes it kind of worrisome is that in order to try, states are going to be doing things to interfere with what other states are doing in ways we haven't seen since the 19th century. And that's going to create a lot of legal uncertainty and a lot of polarization. Well, another issue that might be uh, polarizing is uh, something that Judge uh, Clarence Thomas wrote in his concurring opinion. Uh, He wrote that rights such as same-sex relations and contraception should be revisited because of the the fact that abortion rights and Roe versus Wade, uh, he sees that the reasoning behind those rights to be flawed. Uh, and he mm-hmm. says that that flawed reasoning would, uh, that, that applied to those rulings that ensure uh, the right to same-sex relations uh, and contraception should be re- revisited. Um, and other judges on the Supreme Court have said that this ruling just uh, applies to abortion, that they would have to take it case by case if a case uh, revisiting these key issues would come up. And even with the current Supreme Court's conservative supermajority, um, do you see the support for overturning those decisions or even revisiting something like that? Yeah, I mean, the court's methodology would suggest that all of those decisions are wrongly decided. So the only thing that would keep the court from doing that is either this emphasis that abortion is different because it's a taking of a life or politics, right? The court just saying, we don't want to overrule that other stuff, not because, you know, that's what our methodology would dictate, but just because we think it's a bad idea. And it's certainly possible that that could happen. But You know, it's also, if you had asked, we had had this conversation two years ago, the Supreme Court had just struck down a a pretty modest abortion regulation from Louisiana. 
And if you would ask either of us, do you think the Supreme Court, like there's no way politically the Supreme Court would overrule Roe v. Wade in two years, and yet here we are. So I think it's unlikely the court is going to do any of that in the next year or two. But whether that happens, you know, after that, I think is anybody's guess. Another thing that stuck out to me was that many countries are actually expanding abortion rights, um, while the U.S. is now restricting abortion rights. How have other countries approached this issue and kind of what can we learn from them? Generally, other countries have been moving in the the direction of liberalization recently. So we've seen that across the world in countries from Mexico and Colombia to um, South Korea. Uh, But we and we've also seen some countries try to strike more of a balance. Um, So in other words, say, Uh, In Germany, for example, abortion is a crime, but it's not prosecuted in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Because in Germany, the the courts have said, essentially, we want to protect fetal life, but we don't think we we should do that at the expense of autonomy for women. We should do that by expressing support for people who are pregnant um, and making sure that children, when they're born, are supported. So you, you see other countries sometimes saying, you know, these things shouldn't be as diametrically opposed as we, they are in the United States or saying, you know, the solution, if you're trying to protect fetal life, doesn't need to be more people in prison, which seems to be what the United States is, is doing at the moment. Um, so the United States has been, I think, more of an outlier on this um, in the direction that it's going and is joined mostly by countries that have concerns about their democracies that go beyond abortion, like Poland. So, Um, You may wonder if the U.S., you know, some of what we see happening with January 6th or um, concerns about the 2020 election, if kind of eroding respect for democracy in the U.S. is connected to this because we see that story unfolding in other places. Mary, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. As we come out of the primaries and head toward a midterm election, I thought it would be a good idea to head out on my bike and go out into the community where I talked to a conservative voter that I spoke with in late 2020. We caught up on some of the issues that have caught America's attention since then, such as January 6th, 
Roe versus Wade and this voter's approval of President Biden. We started off by talking about the midterms in Montana. Uh, the primaries are coming up yep. this November, and do you plan to vote? And if so, would you share with me uh, how you're voting? Uh, I am going to vote, and I'll probably vote for the Republican Party. So uh, in this district, we have two districts now for the House of Representatives. Yep. Ryan Zinke, the former Interior Secretary, won uh, the Republican primary, and a woman named... Uh, Monica Trinnell won the Democratic primary. Right. Do, do, was uh, Ryan Zinke your preferred candidate? No. Why not? And who was it? I was for Olszewski. Uh, Zinke just brings a lot of baggage with him. Was it because of his work in the Trump administration? Um, it was his problems as the Secretary of the Interior yeah. when he was there. Not so much that he worked with Trump, but just what he did as the Secretary of Interior. Yeah. Um, Al Oshesky is a surgeon. Uh, he, he actually, it was a much closer race than many analysts were expecting. Why did you support him as a candidate? I just thought he was a good, solid conservative candidate. Um, everything that he was, the questionnaires that he would fill out and the questions that he was, the, the policies that he said that he stood behind are exactly the policies that I stand behind. The, since the last time we spoke, President Biden has been elected. What do you think of him so far? He's been an absolute train wreck. Look at the economy, look at the border, look at every single thing that he's done. He's been an absolute nightmare, exactly what we expected him to do. There's a war happening in Ukraine right now. There would probably be some differences from how Trump would address this issue and how Biden would. Uh, do you approve of his, his response to the war? I think if Trump would have still been in office, we wouldn't have had a war in Ukraine because Putin wouldn't have dared to do it. Um, and no, I think he's screwing things up by the numbers. He's timid. Um, he's weak. Uh, he doesn't have a policy. Um, so he's trying to let he's trying to let the rest of the world lead. And the United States has always been a world leader. You mentioned the economy. Inflation is a big issue here in Montana. We have gas prices that are going up every week, it seems. Uh, also, food prices. Do you think that the president has a role in the, these higher prices? Absolutely, he has a role. When the first thing you do is you shut down the Keystone Pipeline, you take away our gas. Um, then you tell the gas companies that you're going to put them out of business. Now you're out there telling them, hey, you guys need to start drilling more often. They, it's, if they, we need new refineries in this country, and in order for a gas company to build a new refinery, it takes 10 years to recuperate the costs on that. And he's telling them he's going to put, out, put them out of business immediately, yet he wants them to build a 10-year infrastructure program. That's just stupid, but that's the kind of stuff that he does. Um, the January 6th hearings have been something that... Uh is a development since the last time we spoke. Um, what are your views on January 6th? I think it's all bull to be perfectly honest with you. There's nothing there. They've had these sham hearings. Uh, they had another sham hearing yesterday. They had somebody came up that defamed themselves, um, lied under oath, she's saying. And again, this is not a, they say it's a bipartisan uh, group. 
It's not bipartisan. They refused to let the Republicans pick the people that they wanted. They cherry-picked the Republicans that didn't like Trump specifically for what they're doing. They're only doing one side of the trial. They're not letting any counter uh, counter arguments come in. They're not letting anybody uh, cross-examine the witnesses. It's a one-sided sham. So uh, for the 2024 uh, election, the, the, I mean, we're approaching the, the midterms, but for the presidential election, um, it seems that Trump will seek the nomination. Would, would you vote for him? I know the last time I talked to you, you were uh, in the last election cycle, you would have voted for Cruz. Is that right? Yeah. Um, if he had gotten the nomination, but you, you voted for Trump because he, was, he had the nomination. Does Trump still have your support? Oh, absolutely. Even more, no, even more so now than he did back then. Back then, I didn't know what we were going to get. Um, he was a candidate that used to be a Democrat coming back over, and he far out exceeded everything that I was hoping for. I mean, look at the recent rulings that just came out in the courts. He specifically did that by putting three very conservative justices on the court. We got uh, the football coach, we got the ruling on that. We got the the Roe versus Wade, which is an absolute atrocity. They were making up rules 50 years ago that were never there. Um, he's been great, and he's got. I would support him more now than I did back originally. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the the court rulings. Um, there was also the the ruling uh, that they overturned from New York that dealt with gun rights oh, yeah. in public. So yes. that was another key issue that's coming out of this. Yep. Um, it was a five to four decision for Roe versus Wade. I'm 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 just curious to see to hear your thoughts on that because it's been such a divisive issue and not necessarily on party lines. Uh, if the polling on abortion issues has been uh, right, then we know that there are uh, a uh, large percent of Republicans that don't support abortion, but then there's also some that do, yeah. which makes uh, a majority of the American population support, in, in to some extent, abortion rights. Yeah. What are your views on that? I believe birth is, or uh, life begins at conception, and anything other than a medical emergency, rape, incest, things like that, I think uh, abortion is absolutely wrong. Well, it's been great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for uh, telling me more about your views. Okay. News Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can listen to hours of past content, subscribe to our newsletter, and contact us. Or listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at KGVM org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm.